Emmanuel. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And the virgin did conceive. She did bear a son, and Jesus Christ fulfilled that prophecy. When he was born of a virgin in a stable in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago now, he is our Emmanuel. He is God with us. For a little over 30 years, he walked the earth as a man. For the last three years of that life, he spent traveling as a traveling preacher. He, He never got very far from home. He went about proclaiming the kingdom of God and doing good, healing the deaf and the mute, raising the dead, teaching the poor, giving sight to the blind. He spent most of his time with everyday people. He, he was accused of consorting with sinners, a charge he didn't deny because, uh, because, as he declared, he came to seek and to save those who were lost. He concentrated his efforts on just 12 men, one of whom betrayed him, one who denied him, all of whom deserted him. And in the end, he was put to death with common thieves. He hung on a cross to die a slow and humiliating death. And when he had breathed his last, he was laid to rest in a borrowed tomb. That the world even knows that he existed is a wonder in itself. He never wrote any books. He never composed any music. He didn't hold an office. He had no fortune He had no worldly power or might. There was nothing in his appearance even that would attract us to him. He was a man of sorrows, despised and rejected by the rich and powerful and influential of this world. And yet he is honored and worshipped and adored and obeyed and followed by multitudes around this globe and down through the centuries, people who are content and honored to live their lives in his name and to die for that same name. For we know something. We know that death could not keep him. The grave could not hold him. He rose the victor over both. He is our Emmanuel. He is our God who is with us. He has never left us. He has never forsaken us. He lives in us through the person of the Holy Spirit, and he is coming back to this earth again one day, and we say, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And yet he has always been. Just as his life did not end on that cross, it didn't begin in that stable. Before there was a world before there were suns or stars or moons, before there was any created thing, whether animal or plant, anything at all, whether physical or spiritual, God existed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And though many who should have known better didn't recognize him, his coming was not a complete surprise. It was foretold by the prophets and recorded in God's word. Isaiah's prophecy of the virgin giving birth to a son was only one slice of many that were there. From the beginning, in the garden itself, uh, when man first sinned against his maker and fell from glory, God spoke of the seed which was to come, the first mention 
of the coming Messiah. And throughout the pages of Scripture, the promise after promise and prophecy after prophecy, the Messiah who was to come is foretold. The entirety of the Old Testament, the law and the sacrificial system, the priesthood, and the nation of Israel itself existed for no other reason than to prepare the way for and declare his coming. Jesus said of all of it, the law and the prophets, it was written about him, and it all foreshadowed his coming and his work. And that prophecy mentioned, uh, that Matthew mentioned in his gospel, which we read uh, this morning, as powerful as it is, it's only one small slice of a larger whole. And every one of those promises about the Messiah, each one, is another powerful declaration of God's intention to save humankind whom he made in his own image that we might enjoy him forever. The text we're going to look at this morning uh, is another one of those prophecies found also in the book of Isaiah. And it's just one verse of two that go together. And next week, by God's grace, we're going to look at that second one. But for today, I would invite you to join me uh, in Isaiah chapter 9, where we're going to look at verse 6. And you can turn there in your Bible, so the text is also going to be displayed on the screen on the other side of me. So we're, we're going to begin this morning just by reading that passage. And we just heard it uh, up on stage here. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That writing is very poetic, and no matter what language it gets translated into, somehow it still comes across with a majesty that makes mountains seem like molehills. The composer, George Frederick Handel, uh, took those words and put them to music. You know the piece, the Messiah. We hear it every year at this time and at Easter. And it's beautiful, and it's powerful declaration of Isaiah's truth. Uh, But it was the truth which inspired the music and not the other way around. Long before Handel was, believers have steeped themselves in the wonders of those words. And if I could sing it to you, I would. (laughs) But I can't. And since I can't, and because God has called me to proclaim his word, we're going to look at it more closely. We're going to take it apart, verse this verse apart, piece by piece. We're going to examine each part of it with the hope that by doing so, we'll have a greater appreciation of just what God wants to say to us through these words. You and I, every one of us here, are featured in the first phrase of this passage. At least indirectly, it's primarily about Jesus, right? But he tells us why he came. He came for us. We read, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. The Son came into our world for our sakes. He was given for our sakes. 
The Apostle John writes in chapter 3 of his gospel uh, these words that you know so well, I hope. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's verse 16, of course. The very next verse says, For God did not send his uh, Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. In his first letter in John 4, verse 9, he wrote, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. You see, Jesus came into this world for us. You know, people have written many stories uh, uh, about searching for a loved one who is lost or missing. Disney tells the story of a search for Nemo, right? Old, old ancient story, the Iliad, talks about the Greeks as they go after their queen, Helen, that was kidnapped by the Trojans. Jesus told the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, not talking at all about sheep or money, but about us, to tell us he came for us. And, and, and in the movie Taken, the dad searches for his daughter who has been kidnapped. And when he finally finds her and rescues her, she can hardly believe that she's found. And she says to him, Dad, you came for me. And he said, of course I did. What else can you do when you love someone and they're missing? You go after them. The son came for us because we were lost. We were missing. He came to find us. And as wonderful and as important as that is, there's something else contained in these words, which is even more amazing, something which was hidden, really, for generations and centuries and was only revealed when the Savior had come. It's a little bit of a riddle, uh, but like many such puzzles, once you see the solution, it's so obvious, you, you begin to wonder how you didn't see it sooner. L- let me repeat what I just read for you. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. There isn't a child a- and a son. That is, there's not two different children in you. There's only one. The child is born. But while the child must be born, the son could only be given, for he existed for all eternity. He didn't come into being in that stable in Bethlehem. He already was. The son was given when the child was born. I mean, I mean, we just read it how, how many times? Just, just in John's writings alone, God sent his son into the world. I mean, you can hardly blame the Old Testament uh, saints for not seeing that, but, but you wonder how someone today could, can fail to grasp what that text is saying. God sent his son into the world to save us. And what we Christians know, the, th- the thing that our theology teaches us, because the scripture teaches it, is that in order to save us, he had to become one of us. It was the only way. Our world today, it's a sad fact, but our world today has pretty much lost any understanding of sin that it might once have had. 
And yet, when, when we begin to truly grasp the magnitude and the terror of sin, we start to see a number of things. We certainly don't understand it fully. That truth grows in us uh, in time, the longer we walk with the Lord. But we come to know that sin damns us. The truth is that because of sin, we are what theologically we say are we're right objects of wrath. We deserve death. Hell is where we belong. And I'm not just being morbid here. I'm stating facts. And you don't hear these things said often today, but it's true nonetheless. Justice itself declares us guilty and demands our punishment. And in your heart, you know it's true. That's why so many stories about the bad guys getting it in the end. How many have you watched like that? It appeals to us. See, we have this sense of a need for justice. Uh, We just have this blind spot when it comes to ourselves. And we also realize that we cannot save ourselves. Uh, Real knowledge about our condition reveals that we cannot undo even one of our sins, and we have, we have committed many, many more than just one sin in our life. And we come to know something else, too. We know we cannot stop sinning. I know that's not pleasant to hear, is it? Truth sometimes isn't. See, when we first become aware of sin in our lives, we start thinking that uh, we can make up our minds and never sin again. But when and if you ever try that, and you try to do that, you discover it's quite impossible. The harder we try, the more convinced we become of our miserable state. And so at that point, maybe in desperation, we we look elsewhere. We look to a church, or a pastor, or a preacher, or one who calls himself or herself a prophet. But if we're honest with ourselves, we come to see that they cannot save us. We come to understand there is nothing anywhere in this world that can rescue us. Even the law of God himself that he gave us doesn't save us. It condemns us instead. The temple and the sacrificial system are constant reminders of our human failures. They could not, when they existed, clear our consciences. And that's why another covenant was promised, since the first one couldn't deliver us. In fact, if you were given the ability, and if you were given the time to investigate every corner of this universe and look behind every leaf and under every rock, in all the vastness of space, if you could look down past the depths of the oceans into the core of every planet and sun and asteroid, you would find nothing in all this infinite universe to take away your sin. And that's why God sent his son who was outside of the universe. He sent his son through whom the universe was created. He sent him into our world to save us from sin, to become a man, to bear humankind's sin in his body on that cross. The child was born. The son was given for us and you and me and everyone you know. And when he came, um, 
Isaiah goes on to tell us something else about him. The verse says the government shall be upon his shoulder. When the son was given, he took responsibility for everyone and everything else. That's what Isaiah tells us. That word government here means authority. So humankind was told that before Jesus came, he would have all authority. And after being raised from the dead, just before he returned to heaven, Jesus himself claimed that same authority in Matthew 28. And Jesus uh, said to them, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. A biblical authority is not like what we often see around us. You know, people think of authority as uh, a kind of a right. Uh, they, they think it means that you can do what you want to do when you want to do it. They think of it merely in the terms of power. But the Bible, authority means taking responsibility, specifically responsibility for other people. Of course, if you're going to be responsible for something, you have to have power to, to follow through. But it's not about you. It's about those you serve. So I was a young man. I, I grew up in a, well, when I became 25, I became a Christian. But I called my home church that I grew up in. There was a guy there. He was a church administrator. His name was Stan. And we had a youth pastor. And at night, sometimes the teenagers in that area would come and congregate in the church parking lot and leave it a mess. And one day, the youth pastor went out and he found them there. He'd stayed late and he said, well, you guys, if you need a place to hang, you, you, know, you can hang here. Just clean up after yourself. Well, it never really changed. Things continued the way they were. And one night, Stan, retired man and executive for DuPont, our church administrator, went. And he caught the kids in the parking lot. And he went out and told them they couldn't come anymore. And they said to him, the guy that runs this place told us we could. <laughs> and Stan said, I'm responsible for this place. And I'm telling you, you can't. You see, responsibility, authority, means taking responsibility for others. Jesus has all authority. He, he, he took responsibility for us. Now, you know, when you think of authority, uh, you, you shouldn't think of it as getting your own way, but as a responsibility. And, and you can understand why it says that it was on a shoulder. You know that song Jimmy Dean sang, the fictional song about Big Bad John, right? Big John was down in the mine with 20 other miners when a timber cracked and the earth collapsed. And they all thought they were lost and breathed their last. And then up stepped Big John. And Dean sings about him, grabbed the sing sagging timber, gave out with a groan, and like a giant oak tree stood there alone, Big John. And with all of his strength, he gave a mighty shove, and then a miner yelled, there's light up above. And Twenty men scrambled from a would-be grave. Now there's no one left down there to save but Big John. Of course, they didn't save him. Instead, Big John died saving others he was big he was powerful he, he could have saved himself maybe he could have gotten gotten out all alive but but he didn't he had the power he had the strength he could do it and so he did he took responsibility for others and he died in the process which in spite of his name 
big bad John makes it a kind of picture of our Lord who took responsibility for us and died to save us even though he was sinless and need never have died. Jesus was given the authority. He had the power. He took responsibility for us. He put it on his shoulder. He took our sins in his body on that tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The last thing that this verse tells us is the name of the child that was to be born, the son that was given for us, the name of the one who would take responsibility for you and I, the name which, as a matter of fact, could only belong to God. The end of the verse says this, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And just as God in the Old Testament had multiple names to reveal him more fully to us, so here the Son has these four names to more fully reveal him to us. He is the Wonderful Counselor. I don't know about you, my friends, but I love that description. How often do you find yourselves in a place where it's confusing or difficult or hard or sad in this life? And sometimes, though, no fault of our own, we're in there, and sometimes it's all because of us. And at times like that, we don't know what to do, and we often will say something like, I don't know where to turn. But we should know. We have a counselor, and he's wonderful. He knows all things. He knows the mind of God because he is God. We may not know how to get out of our predicament. We may not know what to do, but he does. I've told you this illustration before. A guy had to travel across the Sahara Desert. And so he hired the best guide he could. And the day they were supposed to go, he walked out of the town to the edge of that desert. And he said, where's the road? And the guide said, I am the road. Sometimes in this life we feel like we are lost in a desert. And when that happens, don't despair. We have a guide. We have that wonderful counselor. That name, the Son of God, was given echoes the title of the Holy Spirit in that upper room discourse. Of course it does. <laughs> God is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We may not understand the Trinity. We grasp it better with our heart than our head. And why should we, mere humans that we are and sinners that we are, why do we think we should understand God? But the triune nature of God is a fact. It is the truth, and it is affirmed over and over again throughout the Scriptures and pointed things like we're going to look at in just a moment and in more incidental things like this, like this name in this verse, which when we compare it to what Jesus said in the upper room, reveals the truth and its full meaning. The child that was born... The son that was given is wonderful counselor and he is for us and he is also the mighty God. And this is where we have a pointed statement about God's existence. You have to understand, in the Old Testament, that term mighty God could only refer to the one true God, to Yahweh. The, the, the theologians refer to the tetragrammaton, those four Hebrew letters that stand for I am that I am. 
the one who created everything. It can't refer to anyone else, in spite of what the cults claim. This verse tells us that God would come to us in the flesh, and it tells us how it would happen. The son would be given, a child would be born. And, and as we saw, and as Isaiah makes clear, then the, that he was born of a virgin. And if there's the son, then there's the father too. Maybe, maybe again, we can understand how the Old Testament saints might not fully understand this, but we ought to see it. We ought to take it to heart, even if we don't fully understand it, that the God who came into our world came for us, and it was God who came for us, and he had the power to save us, and he has that power. He is the wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God. And then the son is called the everlasting father. How can this refer to anyone or anything other than God Almighty, the great I am? All all that we said before applies here, of course. Do you remember that upper room discourse? uh, Jesus and the disciples were talking, and he told them something. He said that he was going to God to prepare a place for them. And he told them at that time that he'd come back and get them and told them that he was the way, the truth, and the life. Do you remember that? Do you recall that? He also told them that because they knew him, that is, they knew Jesus, that they knew the Father as well. And then Philip said to him, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Listen to what Jesus said. Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? The everlasting Father came to us in the person of his Son. He came for us. And finally, Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. He's the one who brings peace. I mean, real peace. You know, people, humans, our world around us, I mean, they, they tend to think of peace in negative terms, right? They tend to think that peace is the absence of hostility. Uh, it's the absence of conflict. And yet Christians know and often experience peace in the midst of the most severe conflict. We, we don't always remember that we know that. We don't always experience it because we're sinners. But that peace is always available to us. That peace that God gives is better described in positive terms. It's the fullness of life. It's knowing that God is with you no matter what you face, no matter what you're going through. The Jewish word here is shalom. He's the prince of shalom. And shalom means completeness, soundness, well-being, success, and yes, peace. Who wouldn't want that? (laughs) Who here wouldn't want that? And yet, there's a more important aspect about peace which we need to know. So much more important. It, it's eternal. It's vital. It's, it affects uh, everything else just simply fades to the background in, in light. Of this. We, we dare not overlook it. And the reality that we need to grasp, that we need to understand, is that our relationship with God is the most important and primary thing in our entire life. It affects 
uh, us for all eternity. It affects who we are. It matters to where we will spend eternity. And there can be no real peace unless we are at peace with God. That's why Jesus came. He came for us. He came to make peace between you and God and between me and God. He offers that peace to everyone as a gift. It comes to us by faith when we put our trust in him. Some people here I know are kind of gun enthusiasts. and You probably know that Colt uh, makes a revolver. He started making it in the late 1800s. It's still being manufactured today. It's called the Peacemaker. But you know, no gun can make real peace. It can be used to defeat an enemy, which is sometimes necessary. Uh, The threat it carries uh, may keep civil peace for when it exists for a little while. But peace, real peace, is always a matter of the heart. It's always a matter of the changing of our heart. And no gun can do what a heart needs. Nothing in, in our world can. That's why Jesus came. He made peace by going to the cross. He lives today so he can keep our peace. And and when we lose it or forget it, he's the one who restores it to us. He's the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. The eternal son was given, a child was born. He came with authority. He took responsibility. He went to the cross, dying in our place. He came for us. And if you know that, if you believe that, then you'll know the real meaning of Christmas. And it will make you merrier than you could have ever been on your own. And it will change what you mean when you wish someone else a Merry Christmas. It will remind you, they need Jesus too. You know him. Do you? If you do, then he says you are the light of the world. And people need what you have. If you know that truth, you will remember now and always that he came for us. And so can I say this to you? Merry Christmas, my friend. Merry Christmas. And thanks for joining us this morning. Would you pray with me, please? Thank you, Father, for your goodness to us, and thank you that you sent your Son to take our sins away. Thank you for um, telling us about it uh, long before it ever happened. Thank you that your Spirit continues to speak that truth to the hearts of people this day. Help us, Lord, to take our Lord with us everywhere we go that we might make someone's Christmas this year merrier than it has ever been before. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.